that. I am um, happy to welcome Shane Chapman, uh, Associate Professor and um, Section Chief of, of uh, Dermatology, to welcome today's speaker. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for having uh, us today in dermatology at uh, Medical Grand Rounds. So I want to introduce Matthew Hayden. Um, it's not every day that uh, in dermatology we have a basic scientist, uh, MD, PhD, but we found Matt just wandering around the lime green uh, this summer and said, hey, do you, you have an interest in dermatology? And he, and he did, and here he is. Um, Matt grew up in Pennsylvania, went to Oberlin College, and got an MD and PhD in 2010 at Yale. So even though he's a Yale guy, I told him we wear green here, so he'll have to change his colors a little bit. And he got his PhD in immunobiology. And again, this is sort of a, a quadruple threat for us, uh, having someone interested in dermatology uh, with the basic science background uh, right here in our own backyard. Um, he is the um, Selma and Carl Folkers Prize, or he earned the Selma and Carl Folkers Prize in Excellence in Biomedical Research. In 2013, he was the George Henry Fox Endowed Professor at Columbia. In 2015, he won the American Skin Association Research Award, and I think that's where he got some of his interest in skin and dermatology. Um, he's published on um, everything from tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitor to uh, what he's going to talk about today with cancer cell-to-cell uh, -cell signaling. He has over 40 peer-reviewed journal articles in the New England Journal, a couple in the New England Journal, Science, Nature, and most recently in Cell. Um, I read all that paper last night, Matt. It was great. I did fall asleep, though. <laughs> uh, he's been a teacher, mentor, uh, and had several leadership roles uh, wherever he's gone, whether it be Yale uh, Columbia, uh, and now here at Dartmouth, we, in the, on the clinical side, really look forward to collaborating with him, uh, and we're probably going to overload you, buy a lot of mice, because we're going to overload you, Matt, with all the things we've been waiting to experiment on, from psoriasis and inflammation uh, to cancer. So that, that all sounds really good, but what Matt is most famous for and, and best at is his, um, his uh, brewing of glug which he brought me a bottle of uh, for the holidays, and I'm still drinking a little sip of it every night. So, uh, Matt, welcome. Thanks for being here. And yeah, it grows hair. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Good morning. Glad to finally be here. Um, sort of. Actually, I was born in Pennsylvania, but grew up in Vermont um, with uh, Dr. Dick there nearby. Um, so. First, I have no actual or potential conflict of interest related to this presentation to declare. Um, so today, I'm going to take you all deep into some basic science and cell signaling. Um, try to keep it light. Um, it will get a little heavy at times, but we'll sort of boomerang in and out of kind of the depths of the alphabet soup that um, comprises the NF-kappa-B signaling pathway and talk about some disease states that are impacted, um, as well as how we might target this pathway therapeutically. Um, so the outline for the talk, I'm going to go through a little bit of the history of the pathway, because I think it's a good way to be introduced to sort of the fundamentals of what this particular signaling pathway does. Um, 
a very bird's eye overview of the role of NF-kappa-B in particularly the immune system, um, as well as just touch on a couple of diseases where there's been a lot of progress. Um, but then the focus and what I hope to focus on here are really the failures of this area of research. Um, and I'll, I'll say more about what I mean by that in a minute, but suffice it to say, you all probably don't know that much about this pathway, um, and that's because it really hasn't made that much of a clinical impact yet. Um, and we'll, we'll visit some of the reasons why that is and talk about some of our current work and how we hope to address that failure. Um, so usually I'll start by throwing up a very complicated overview of the NF-kappa-B signaling pathway. Um, instead, I thought I would start with the real basics, which is, what is this? This is a pathway that helps cells respond to a huge variety of different cell stressors. So those could be a cytokine binding to a receptor at the cell surface. It could be DNA damage. It could be UV light. It could be free radical damage. Any number of different cell stresses. And NF-kappa-B is a transcription factor that gets activated, it goes to the nucleus, and it regulates the expression of thousands of different genes. Now, sort of in keeping with the times, um, I, I just started using Twitter recently and got a tweet this morning. Um, and given how the news reacts immediately to early morning tweets, I thought I would do the same. So I've restructured my talk, um, thought about it on the drive-in. And instead of starting straight with the history, first I thought I'd give a little bit of a reason as to why this pathway is so important. And where this came from was a tweet announcing a prize awarded by the National Academies to a dermatologist and physician scientist at Stanford named Howard Chang. Um, the prize was for his work on what are called non-coding RNAs, um, but what it reminded me of was his work on NF-kappa-B and aging. So, I thought as we sit here for an hour, we can all contemplate our mortality um, and, and think a little bit about the aging process. I know NF-kappa-B has aged me, and it's aging all of you at the same time. Um, so what the Chang Group had done, um, let's see, is this going to work? Maybe the arrow is better. Um, was to set up a screen to try to understand what are the transcription factors that regulate the aging process? And the way they went about this was to do a lot of microarrays at that time and look at the expression of all genes in a whole bunch of different tissues from both mice and people um, and at all different ages. So each decade in humans, every couple of months in mice. And then they ask, what are the signature of the genes that are associated with aging? And another, put another way, what are the transcription factors that seem to be driving the aging process? Um, and the reason that I bring this up is because the one that popped out when they looked at um, aged mice or aged people was the NF-kappa-B pathway, suggesting that this pathway, which is associated with inflammation, is driving the expression of the genes that... that um, manifest as age. Um, and this was not just limited to skin, this was in a, a wide variety of organs. Um, and it wasn't just a correlation with aging, they actually used a genetic model to ask what happens if we inhibit the NF-kappa-B pathway in the skin of old mice. 
Um, and so they did this with an inducible system where you can paint on tamoxifen and it drives the expression of an inhibitor of the pathway. And on the other side, you paint on just the vehicle ethanol. Um, and then they looked at the gene expression and the skin from the two sides of the same mice. And what you find when you do that is that the phenotype shown here on the left in terms of gene expression, the gene expression signatures that um, define the aged mice are almost completely reversed when you block the NF-kappa B pathway. And this was true histologically as well. Um, and they begin to look much more like the skin of young mice. So we'll start there with this sort of complicated idea of what NF-kappa B can do. You can think about how, as you sit here for an hour, this pathway is becoming slightly more triggered, gaining a little bit of aging. And as we start to think about inhibitors, we can, we can think about whether or not there might be ways to reverse that. And I'll come back to this specific example as we go forward. All right, so the history of the pathway. So I like to show this um, often in these kinds of talks. I'm speaking to a group of immunologists, and I'm trying to explain why the pathway I study is more important than the pathway they study. Um, and one way to do that is to show the huge number of publications that come out about NF-kappa B. So right now there's about 8,000, 8, 7,000 publications every year on NF-kappa B. That's about half a percent of all PubMed index um, citations total. So this is a huge area of research. Um, but I bring that up today because I think that what that fact says combined with the fact that most people don't know that much about it is that that research hasn't done that much for us yet clinically. Um, and so that's, that's what I want to get to. So, so the basics of the discovery of the pathway. So in the early 80s, people were trying to figure out how B cells develop. Um, and specifically, what are the factors that regulate the expression of the B cell receptor as B cells are developing in the bone marrow? Um, so in the laboratory of David Baltimore, who's a Nobel laureate, they were trying to solve this problem. And they were specifically trying to see what are the transcription factors that turn off and on the light chain of the B cell receptor of surface IgM. Um, and so a postdoc in the lab at that time, Ranjan Sen, um, who's now the head of the immunology program at the National Institute of Aging, um, used a little piece of DNA from the kappa light chain enhancer and essentially incubated it with extracts from either different B cell lines or from B cells at different stages of, of development. And what he found was that there was some factor that was binding to that piece of DNA that was only present in the B cells that expressed the kappa light chain. And so that's where the name comes from. It's nuclear factor um, of nuclear factor kappa B. So it's NF kappa B. It's, it's seemed to be specific to this particular cell type. Um, and so they thought, okay, in pre-B cells, NF kappa B is being turned on, and then it's driving expression of kappa light chain, and on and on it goes. And that was sort of the way that we thought about that people were thinking about transcription at that time. It was that you express a transcription factor, it goes to the nucleus and turns on a bunch of genes. What was less clear was how things like endotoxin or um, cytokines regulate the expression of genes because there wasn't that much known about inducible transcription factors other than perhaps glucocorticoid receptor or others like that. So the next thing that they did that was published 
the very next year also in cell was to look at really where is this factor expressed. And, and they did a key experiment, which was to take pre-B cells that didn't have the factor and to stimulate them with lipopolysaccharide. Okay, so this is um, what we now know is a toll-like receptor ligand. Um, it comes, it's just a bacterial cell wall product. Um, and what they found was that they could induce this activity. Okay, so now this takes this from being something that's just expressed in a particular cell type that regulates one specific gene and changes it to some factor that you can turn off and on, on and off in lots of different cell types. And that's a very different thing and has much broader implications. And at the same time, a lot of people started to look at this and found that this factor seemed to be functioning in other cell types in response to other stressors, um, that it seemed to be regulating the uh, expression of HIV after integration and, and a lot of other factors. Um, so that was one important step, and that's how this became sort of one of the first and best characterized inducible transcription factors. All right, so, so moving on, it turned out what was NF-kappa-B, and there was more than one thing. So this wasn't a single protein. It ended up being a family of five different proteins that form almost all possible combinations of homo and heterodimers. Um, so that work came in pretty rapid succession in the couple of years after the original description of the binding activity. Um, the next thing was this question of how is it regulated? It turned out, once these were cloned, that it's expressed broadly in almost all nucleated cells. And so what is it that keeps it inactive in a cell that's, that's not stimulated with LPS or that's not transitioning from pre-B cell to immature B cell? And what they found was that there was something binding to it. And if you took nuclear extracts and you incubated them with a detergent to sort of disrupt protein interactions, you could turn on NF-kappa-B activity. Um, so suggesting that there was some post-translational modification that was keeping it shut off. Um, and it turned out that that was another protein, and it was a protein that's called inhibitor of kappa-B, or I-kappa-B. Um, and as that work went on, there wasn't just one. There were a couple identified, and then a couple more, and then there, there are eight. Um, and so now we have quite a bit of complexity to the pathway. So the question became, what caused the I-kappa-B proteins to get degraded, okay, because that's what was happening. You stimulate the cell with LBS or with TNF or with IL-1, um, and I-kappa-B alpha, which is the one that's most studied, is degraded. NF-kappa-B goes to the nucleus and turns on genes. So in the late 90s, there was a flurry of activity, and a kinase complex was identified by five groups simultaneously. Um, that consisted of two kinases and a regulatory protein. And, and these end up regulating all forms of NF-kappa-B activation. So the two kinases, it turns out, have somewhat distinct functions. Um, and so the pathway can be split somewhat in two. Um, one leads to degradation of I-kappa-B proteins. And the other leads to processing of specific um, I-kappa-B proteins that are sort of a precursor form of the protein. Once they're processed, they form an active NF-kappa-B that can go to the nucleus. So those are called the canonical and non-canonical pathway. So here we are. We started with this fairly simple idea of something stresses a cell, it turns on genes, and we end up with something that's enormously complex. Um, you have eight I-kappa-B proteins 
binding to all different possible combinations of five homo and heterodimers of NF-kappa B proteins. You have these, some of these expressed in all nucleated cells, some of them with more limited or inducible expression. So, so the pathway becomes quite complicated. And because of that complexity, is able to regulate a huge number of gene expression events um, in response to a huge number of different inputs. So I mentioned some of these earlier, but there are genetic inputs where there are mutations in the pathway or negative regulators of the pathway that impact its activation. There's a variety of chemical and um, physical cell stresses that can directly activate the pathway. There are the best known activators of the pathway, which are pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, and most typically those of the IL-1 and TNF family, um, IL-17 family as well. Um, and then there are components of microbial products. So the discovery of this pathway was really fundamental to the work that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s to begin to understand how the innate immune system works. So it was the knowledge that something was activating NF-kappa-B and driving activation of antigen-presenting cells that in the uh, Janeway lab allowed toll-like receptors to be demonstrated to be the key mediator of innate immunity. The outputs are more diverse than the inputs, okay? So there are several thousand genes. Um, NF-kappa-B, the, the subunits that have been studied, been shown to directly bind to the promoters and enhancers of many thousand genes. Um, and there's quite a bit of variability in that from cell type to cell type. But in general classes, these are genes that drive proliferation and cell survival, um, that regulate adhesion and matrix metalloproteinase activity. Um, there's a large class of microRNAs and long non-coding RNAs that are regulated by NF-kappa-B that go on to regulate other pathways. Um, most important and best studied is the regulation of cytokines. So what you have are sort of some important feed-forward loops where cytokines like TNF drive activation of NF-kappa-B. NF-kappa-B regulates expression of TNF. And in that way, NF-kappa-B becomes implicated in a lot of inflammatory pathology. Um, this all started with lymphocyte signaling, B-cell receptor and T-cell receptor signaling. And NF-kappa-B is important in regulating genes that are involved in T-cell and B-cell responses and development, and I'll come back to that. And then in the innate immune system, the initial recognition of pathogens is mediated by toll-like receptors. They're activating NF-kappa-B, and that drives expression of innate immune effector molecules, antimicrobial peptides, and the like. All right, so what this gives the impression of is a pathway that's predominantly involved in the regulation of immune responses. Um, so I just want to touch briefly on some of that. So I mentioned already, and I'm not, I'm not going to go through the weeds on these pathways because I don't think that's very useful. Um, some of my work in the lab is really diving into this, but I'm, I'm not going to talk about that work today. So we'll gloss over this and just say that, you know, these are important downstream outputs of toll-like receptor signaling, cytokine signaling in the innate immune system. In the adaptive immune system, there are a wide variety of functions, and these are not just in effector functions or in responses to a pathogen, but it turns out 
particularly for the non-canonical or alternative NF-kappa-B pathway, that this pathway is really important in the development of lymphoid organs, in the development of thymic architecture, um, in the development of secondary and tertiary lymphoid organs as well. So mutations in this pathway can, can have effects on, on those developmental processes. And likewise, therapeutics that target the pathway can affect the development of germinal centers. They can affect the development of tertiary lymphoid architecture of mucosal-associated lymphoid organs. Um, so we, we begin to see how it may be a challenge to block this pathway therapeutically. Um, similarly, similarly, in hematopoiesis, there's a wide variety of roles that have been ascribed to this pathway, not just pre-B cell to immature B cell transition, but throughout T cell development um, and aspects of dendritic cell development and, and myeloid cell development as well. Um, and, and these roles in the regulation of genes that are involved in lymphocyte proliferation and development are part of the reason, reason why this pathway has been so heavily implicated in leukemia and lymphoma. Um, and then beyond development of the immune system and the adaptive immune system in the context of a T cell or B cell response, when the antigen receptor sees its cognate ligand or antigen presented in the context of MHC, one of those pathways that becomes activated is the NF-kappa-B pathway. And activation of NF-kappa-B by T-cell receptor, in the example of T-cells, as well as by cytokines, is really important in shaping the nature of the immune response. So for T-cells, are they differentiating into Th17 type for CD4 T-cells? Are they becoming Th1, Th2, <laughs> Th9, Th22, all the, all the new ones that we don't necessarily want to add to this soup? Um, and then it also has a role in the maintenance of memory. So if we put all that together, and this is the, where I would normally start things for making the argument that this pathway is important to the immune system, we end up with a transcription factor that is involved in the recognition of a pathogen, transmitting that recognition event by toll-like receptors into the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and antimicrobial effectors, as well as, in the case of antigen-presenting cells, maturation of those cells, upregulation of MHC, migration to the lymph node, and then those pro-inflammatory cytokines that are, or cytokines that are being produced are going to be important in instructing the T-cell response. The response of the T-cells and B-cells themselves are going to be dependent on the activation of NF-kappa B, um, as well as, as and, and so the, the effector response that follows with the adaptive immune system as well is going to depend on this pathway. Okay, so we went from here to there. Um, a simple factor that when cells get stressed, goes to the nucleus and binds to a single DNA element to one that's actually part of a large family that responds to a huge number of different inputs and regulates a huge number of different outputs. Um, but I want to come back to some of those simpler key outputs and how we might go from that to thinking about, all right, what's, why do we care? What's it doing in, in disease states? So we can sort of bifurcate things into the genes that are regulated that are part of the immune response and those that are important for proliferation and cell survival. And then organize below those a set of disease with 
either that are either immune in origin or are have a significant component of immunopathology. Um, and on the other side, we have genetic syndromes that are associated with uh, mutations and negative regulators of NF kappa B that drive proliferative phenotypes, um, as well as, of course, cancer. So a large part of those eight, seven, 8,000 papers that are coming out every year are descriptions of how NF-kappa B is regulated in your disease of choice or dysregulated in your disease of choice or in different tumor subtypes. So this is a huge area of work. It produces lots and lots of literature. We haven't figured out what to do with that yet. So to go through a few diseases where there's some strong evidence, where there's been a lot of work, um, to implicate NF-kappa B as either a key etiological factor or as a, a key driver of pathology. Um, so, you know, this pathway is regulating inflammation. It's not surprising that it would be hyperactivated in the context of a disease like inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so the data to demonstrate that that's the case goes back a couple decades. Um, if you look at biopsies, you find really robust activation of the pathway. Um, and the, the activation of NF-kappa B in the context of Crohn's disease or also colitis correlates with, with severity histologically. So in further evidence that it's an important factor in the disease, um, and this is where we run into trouble with translating things between mice and humans, but in mice, if you block the pathway, it does good things. So this is true in acute models of colitis as well as in chronic models of colitis, um, and there's been quite a bit of work in that area. In humans, the best evidence we have is some evidence that a lot of the drugs that seem to work, whether it's biologics or salicylate derivatives, seem to be targeting NF-kappa B as well, and, and I'll come back to that. Um, so the evidence suggests that the extent of NF-kappa B activation in colitis correlates with severity, and if you inhibit NF-kappa B, and in this case it's a peptide inhibitor of the NF-kappa B pathway, um, and in an acute model of colitis, you see that the mice don't loses much weight. So these really severe acute colitis um, that's chemically induced and the mice lose weight rapidly and that's protected by NF-kappa B. Um, and on the flip side, if you drive NF-kappa B activation constitutively um, in intestinal epithelial cells, you can actually drive spontaneous development of colitis and spontaneous development of adenocarcinoma associated with that colitis. So there's been a lot of work that has looked at, is NF-kappa B not just involved in the inflammation of colitis, but is it the key factor that, translate that translates that inflammation into the development of colorectal cancer? Moving on, so again, these are just some snapshots of um, where we're at in terms of understanding NF-kappa B in different disease pathologies and um, again, mostly based on, on mouse models. So in rheumatoid arthritis, it's a similar situation. You could make the same case in some other auto, autoimmune or autoinflammatory diseases. You find robust activation of NF-kappa B, and it is specifically associated with disease, and it correlates with disease severity. And again, this is something we've known for decades. Um, similar to the case in inflammatory bowel disease, 
you can inhibit the pathway and ameliorate disease in murine models. Um, so in the collagen-induced arthritis model in mice, if you give them, again, the same peptide inhibitor of the NF-kappa B pathway, they, de they develop less evidence of arthritis. Um, in this case, just looking at pothicness as, as a readout as well as uh, scores, but it's, it's a fairly broad effect, effect on osteoclastogenesis. So this has been an active area, and this is one of the few areas where there have been some clinical trials of some small compounds that target the pathway that um, have not been that promising and, and haven't gone anywhere. All right. A more complicated story is that of atherosclerosis. Um, so again, established very early, as soon as essentially the assays were available to do it, that there's robust activation of this pathway within an atherosclerotic plaque. Um, similarly to what I've told you about in RA or inflammatory bowel disease, um, there's very good evidence that if you block NF-kappa B in either endothelial cells or smooth muscle cells that you protect mice from the development of atherosclerosis, you actually protect them in mouse models in which you're giving a high-fat diet just by deleting in smooth muscle cells. You protect them from obesity, and you protect them from some of the other sequelae of metabolic syndrome. Where this becomes complicated is that the expectation would be that you would see something similar if you deleted NF-kappa B or inhibited NF-kappa B in macrophages. And this is where we begin to see that some of our ideas about, okay, this pathway is upregulated in an inflammatory state, let's shut it off and that'll treat the disease, begin to fall apart. Um, so it, what was surprising, and it turned out that when NF-kappa B was deleted in macrophages, that actually the mice became increasingly susceptible to atherosclerosis. So the size of the plaques induced by high-fat diet was increased um, in, in the LDL receptor knockout mouse model. Um, and that was a little bit perplexing. Um, it turns out what's going on here, and, and this applies to other scenarios as well, is that the role of NF-kappa B in these cells of the immune system is not just to promote an immune response. It also has an important role in helping to clean up that immune response. So specifically in the case of atherosclerosis, while NF-kappa B is going to be important in the activation of endothelial wall and smooth muscle cells as a result of exposure to oxidized, um, to oxidized lipids, and that's going to be important for upregulating the adhesion molecules and the deposition of other cells of the immune system at the site, that once those macrophages are there and they're becoming activated, they're using NF-kappa B, they're secreting cytokines, that's driving the process. But an important part of what's driving the process is the death of those cells. And when you remove NF-kappa B from the system, you see a lot more necrosis and cell death within the plaque and that, in turn, drives worsening of the disease. So you need NF-kappa B there in those cells of the innate immune system to help clean things up. Um, and that's not the only scenario where this is going to be the case. Um, and I'll come back to that when I talk about some of our recent work. Finally, cancer. Um, I'm not going to go through all of it because it looks like that. Um, that's, that list is now a decade old. Um, you know, so there's been 
60,000 articles in the intervening decade, most of which, again, are focused on cancer. And so it's not really necessarily that useful unless we're going to spend an hour talking about one specific tumor type to get into exactly how NF-kappa B is dysregulated in malignancy. I think it, it's worth just coming back to, again, some of those key outputs that NF-kappa B regulates. So protection of cells from apoptosis, driving cell survival, and driving cytokine production, and regulating matrix metalloproteinases and other factors that are involved in extracellular remodeling. Those are really the key pathways that put this in a very important place um, in a lot of different malignancies. And, and the one that I'll add is also the response, obviously, to genotoxic stress or other cell stressors, because a lot of what we want to do therapeutically is activating this pathway. And that's driving a pro-survival response in the tumor cells themselves. So there's been a lot of interest in knocking down NF-kappa B in malignancy for that reason, as an adjuvant therapeutic, so that we see better efficacy of existing therapies. Um, in terms of activation of the pathway in cancer, there are a huge number of different mutations that have been described. There's upregulation of various cytokines and various tumor types that have been described to drive the pathway. Um, it's, it's, it's a complex and evolving field, and, and I don't think I'll get into it further. If you're interested, the best place to look is in the B-cell lymphoma field, where there's been a ton of work on mutations that activate NF-kappa B. So that's a tiny sampling of the hundreds or thousands of diseases in which NF-kappa B has been implicated. So why aren't we using drugs? Um, so... It's not that there aren't drugs, and I'll get to that. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of them. Every little pharmaceutical company, from the smallest to the largest, has had active NF-kappa B inhibitor programs for two decades, um, and almost nothing has come of it. Where there have been some successes have been in finding out that, oh, this drug we've been using for decades is acting at least in part, or maybe largely, through inhibition of NF-kappa B. Um, and that comes back to what I mentioned about salicylates and inflammatory bowel disease, but there's several other examples. The best known are corticosteroids. Um, so it was discovered quite early on, um, within the first five to 10 years or so of discovery of the NF-kappa B pathway, that a large part of what corticosteroids were doing was to inhibit NF-kappa B. And there are two mechanisms through which this happens. One is a direct mechanism where, um, you know, binding to the corticoid receptor turns on inhibitors of the NF-kappa B pathway. Yeah, so that was shown pretty early on and causes a general shutdown of the pathway. The other mechanism is that there is some direct binding events between glucocorticoid receptor and NF-kappa B, as well as some competition for nuclear resources that are necessary for driving gene expression. And so when you push the, the glucocorticoid pathway with corticosteroids, you can outcompete NF-kappa B and effectively turn off some, some gene expression through NF-kappa B. So obviously, you know, given the role of NF-kappa B in inflammation and T-cell responses, and the effects of corticosteroids on the same pathways, it's, it, it seems that there's some heavy lifting being done here through inhibition of NF-kappa B, and there's quite a bit of evidence for that. Another more interesting one um, came from 
my former mentor's lab um, before I started there, which is that aspirin and salicylates are, can act as direct inhibitors of the pathway. Um, and this becomes very interesting in the context of inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it also becomes very interesting in thinking about some of the chemopreventative effects of aspirin in terms of, of colorectal cancer. Um, so there's, there's been quite a bit of interest in what, how, to what extent inhibition of NF-kappa B contributes to some of these effects. Um, so there is good evidence that when you're giving these drugs in inflammatory bowel disease, you do see inhibition of NF-kappa B acutely in the, the context of um, ulcerative colitis. Um, and so those are things to be further explored. Um, one from the field of dermatology is that tetracycline derivatives, um, often used for their anti-inflammatory properties, um, we recently published can directly inhibit NF-kappa B um, and can do so in the context of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and actually have some significant effects in terms of augmenting chemotherapeutic effects in CTCL. Um, so there's a fairly large group of people working on tetracycline derivatives as well as curcumin derivatives that are related, actually, and their effects on NF-kappa B. Um, and the last one, to bring it back to the fact that we all have our NF-kappa B pathway a little more activated than we did 40 minutes ago, um, is in the context of aging. So this is a really interesting recent paper um, well, a couple of years ago now, showing that sodium hypochlorite bleach is an effective inhibitor of NF-kappa B. Um, and if you taste, take mice and drop them in a bucket with a little bit of dilute bleach in it for a little bit of time each day, you can actually reverse signs of aging in their skin. Um, and, and that that was through inhibition of NF-kappa B. So that's what I like and uh, comes back to what I spoke about earlier. So, bleach baths, give it a try. Everyone can have one after today. Um, all right, that's not a recommendation. <laughs> so what about targeted inhibitors? Um, I showed you all the research. I mentioned that everyone and their mother has a program going to develop inhibitors of kappa B. Um, I haven't talked about any with any efficacy yet. Um, so this is a review from Tom Gilmore at BU who does, who put together that NF-kappa B in cancer list I showed earlier and up until 10 years ago tried to maintain a website where he kept track of every inhibitor, every disease, all the references, um, and uh, I, think, I think that's fallen by the wayside over the last decade. But he published this review article in 2006 um, called NF-kappa inhibitors of NF-kappa B signaling, 785 and counting. So at that time, those, that's what had been reported in the literature. And, and the quote from the abstract was that compounds designed as specific NF-kappa B inhibitors are not yet in clinical use, but they're likely to be developed as treatments for certain cancers, neurodegenerative diseases, which I didn't talk about, but that's a huge area of research, and inflammatory diseases. Essentially saying, we're, we're almost there. We have all of these compounds. Everyone was gearing up towards phase one trials. Um, but here's a review from last year. Despite the aggressive efforts by the pharmaceutical industry to develop a specific inhibitor, none has been clinically approved. So, so that's where we went in a decade. Um, and, and the thinking is that's largely due to 
dose-limiting toxicities because of all the physiological functions, especially within the immune system that I spoke about earlier. But it's also probably due to some failures in um, really identifying specifically which portion of that very complex pathway you want to target in a given disease. Um, so speaking to the dose-limiting toxicity, um, there was this is one of the many genetic diseases associated with defects in the NF-kappa B pathway. This was a, a, a kindred with mutations in one of the key kinases in the pathway, IKK-beta. And essentially, these patients had a severe combined immunodeficiency. Um, they had ver close to, if not complete, agammaglobulinemia. Um, and all of, essentially, their peripheral immune cells were in a fully naive state. Um, they lacked regulatory T cells. Um, and yet weren't developing autoimmunity because their conventional T cells were non-responsive. Okay. So from the therapeutic side, we have some drugs that may or may not target the pathway, do it to a greater or lesser extent, have some widespread use and efficacy, but we don't really know if that's through NF-kappa B. And then we have, at this point, thousands of really good specific strong inhibitors of the pathway with no clinical use at all. Um, so really, this huge effort um, has provided a lot of NIH funding for a lot of labs and a lot of very high-profile publications, but we haven't been able to translate that work to the clinic very effectively yet. Um, and so in the last 15 minutes, what I want to talk about is some recent work we have done, um, primarily the co collaborator and former mentor at Columbia, um, and, and how that provides a framework for thinking about moving forward with developing inhibitors of this pathway. So to do that, I want to talk about two different T cell populations, conventional T cells, conventional CD4 T cells, and regulatory T cells. So. These are two sides of the same coin. They come from the same precursor cell in the thymus. Um, regulatory T cells see a slightly stronger stimulus. They maybe are slightly more reactive towards self. <laughs> and within the thymus, those precursors differentiate into T reg cells. Um, with slightly less stimulus, they become conventional naive CD4 T cells. So starting from there, from to almost identical cells. And moving into the periphery, those two cells see the same thing, antigen, the complex context of MHC presented by antigen-presenting cells, and have diametrically opposed biological responses. One shuts down the immune response, and one is the effector of the immune response. And they do that, so far as we know, through the exact same signaling pathway. It is activation of T cell receptor, co-receptor, driving activation of NF-kappa B amongst other transcription factors, and yet the biological outcome is, is completely opposed. And this gets back to what I discussed about macrophages. If you're going to target this pathway, you have to keep in mind the fact that it's often working at odds with itself. It's regulating the immune response. It's resolving inflammation. It's mediating effector T cell responses, but it's also opposing effector T cell responses. So we wanted to know how that happened. 
And, and to know that, what we really wanted to drill down into is which specific members of the pathway, and in this case specifically two members, um, oops, got the wrong two box there, P65 and CREL down there, um, are important for regulatory T cell function. There was already quite a bit of information about how these worked in conventional T cells. We knew P65 was important in conventional T cells, but not so much CREL. Um, so the way that we did this was to use a specific system to delete these family members only in regulatory T cells, okay? Because if you delete it in the whole mouse, which is how this had been done for decades, then you have the problem that the conventional T cells are no longer normal. So you don't really know whether or not the regulatory T cells are working because the conventional T cells aren't working. And the typical readout for defects in regulatory T cell function is the development of autoimmunity. So in work that um, was published last fall in Immunity, um, a postdoc, Hunjuo, in the Ghosh lab, um, we, we looked at exactly what happens when you delete NF-kappa B in these different subsets, and are the different subunits doing the same things? So what we found was that NF-kappa B regulates a very different group of genes in regulatory T cells compared to T conventional cells. So when you activate the T cell receptor, you have NF-kappa B being activated in both cases, but because the chromatin environment, the sort of epigenetic modifications in those two T cell subsets is different, NF-kappa B binds to different genes and turns on different genes in those two cell types. And that's how the one transcription factor can drive these sort of opposite responses. But what was also interesting, and it's sort of best shown in these Venn diagrams here, was that when you knock out both subunits, you get huge effects on regulatory T-cell gene expression. When you knock out either of them, either CREL or P65, you have very different effects, and there's not that much overlap between the two, suggesting that they're actually doing different things in regulatory T-cells. Um, and that manifests in different phenotypes of the mice. If you knock out both subunits of the canonical NF-kappa-B pathway in regulatory T-cells, the mice die within days. Um, and they die within days due to severe systemic autoimmunity and lymphoproliferation, just like you see if you knock out FOXP3, which is sort of the key regulator of regulatory T-cell development. So canonical NF-kappa-B is absolutely required for regulatory T-cell function. For P65 alone, you see sort of an intermediate phenotype where over the course of the couple, couple of um, of 10 weeks or so, a couple months, the mice develop severe systemic inflammatory diseases and also succumb to those diseases. So suggesting that P65 is not just important in the effector cell response, it's also critical in the regulatory T cell response, and meaning that it's probably not a great target if we want to manipulate either of those responses. So if we want to shut down an immune response in the context of an inflammatory disease and we target P65, we're also going to be suppressing regulatory T-cell responses, and, and there are going to be negative outcomes from that. In the context, context of cancer, if we want to shut off the suppressive arm of the immune system, we're going to run into problems if we blanket turn off NF-kappa-B because we're going to impact the ability of conventional effector T-cells to mediate an immune response and to mediate um, tumor immunity. So what was interesting was when we looked at CREL, 
So despite the fact that we had seen fairly significant changes in regulatory T-cell gene expression programs that were suggestive that there were going to be problems with these cells, and despite the fact that if we took these cells out and looked at whether or not they were suppressive in a Petri dish, they were not. They clearly had some problems. The mice were fine. And so what this suggested was that CREL had some important roles in Treg function that we could see in vitro, but that it wasn't necessary for the suppression of autoimmunity, of spontaneous autoimmunity, and it wasn't necessary for the suppression of lymphoproliferation. And those two findings are important because if we want to target Treg function in the context of tumors, we don't necessarily want to target it systemically because we don't want to induce lethal autoimmunity. Um, so to summarize that, what we found was that NF-kappa B regulates distinct genes in regulatory and conventional T cells. Um, P65 seems to be essential in both cell types for suppressive and defector func functions. CREL has a more limited function, and we were particularly interested in some of the genes that were affected because it suggested that it was affecting a subset of regulatory T cells that are known as activated or effector Tregs. And those cells, while we were doing this work, were shown to be crucial for maintaining the suppression of immunity in the tumor environment, so for maintaining tumor tolerance. So this was work from, from Ming Lee at Memorial Sloan Kettering showing that if you tweak the levels of these activated Tregs, you can really help to augment the tumor immune response. So we looked at that more specifically, and indeed it was clear that CREL seemed to be selectively affecting the expression of genes that are associated with ATregs, so genes that are normally lower in ATregs than their counterpart resting Tregs were upregulated when you deleted CREL. And genes that are norm normally highly expressed in ATregs were downregulated when you deleted CREL. So what does this mean for tumors? Um, so in a, the B6 melanoma model of mice, if you implant those melanomas into mice that are either lacking P65 or CREL, what you find is that the mice lacking CREL only in regulatory T cells show much less tumor growth, suggesting and that there's a much stronger tumor immune response. And indeed, there is. Um, this is dependent on CD8 T cells uh, regulating the growth of those tumors. So it is dependent on the tumor immune response. If you delete CD8 T cells, you don't see the response. And even more interestingly, not only are those Tregs not working to suppress the T cells, they're actually starting to turn on pro-inflammatory cytokine production. So the regulatory T cells that are in the tumor microenvironment that are lacking CREL take on a pro-inflammatory phenotype and actually seem to be augmenting the immune response, not just no longer suppressing it. So what does this mean, and can we move this forward? So Ranjan Sen, actually, who originally discovered NF-kappa-B, had decades ago shown that the phosphodiesterase inhibitor pentoxifylline seemed to selectively inhibit CREL. It's not yet clear why that's the case, but it's, it's been in the literature for a couple decades. It actually works at the level of decreasing CREL protein levels, um, as shown here. And it turns out that if you treat regulatory T cells with pentoxifylline, you diminish their ability to suppress T 
T-cell proliferation in vitro, just like deletion of CRL does. You see some overlap in terms of the effects on regulatory T-cell gene expression. Um, so obviously, conduxifiline does a lot of other things, and you see a lot of other changes in gene expression. But if you look at some of those core Treg genes that are impacted by deleting CRL, they're also impacted by deleting pentoxifiline, by using pentoxifiline. And in vivo, you see what you see with CRL deletion. Um, and it is dependent on CRL in Tregs, this effects of pentoxifiline. Because if you treat those mice that lack CRL and Tregs with pentoxifiline, you don't see any effect on tumor growth. Okay, so they're, they're acting through the same pathway. So not only do you see augmentation of the anti-tumor immune response when you treat these mice with pentoxifiline, but you also see strong additive effects. Um, we haven't done the work yet to prove that they're synergistic, but they appear synergistic. Um, between pentoxifiline and either anti-PD-1 or PDL one therapies. And that's because these are acting on sort of parallel pathways within the tumor environment to block the mechanisms that drive tumor tolerance and allow effective anti-tumor immune responses. Um, and that is just summarized here. In wild-type Tregs, you have a, a large population of activated AT regs in the tumor microenvironment, and those contribute to the immunosuppressive nature of that tumor and microenvironment. There are lots of ways that are being explored to alleviate that immunosuppression, so checkpoint blockade inhibitors like um, anti-PD-1, anti-PD-L1, anti-CTLA-4 are one way, and a parallel way may be to affect the function of those specific Tregs. Um, and Targeting of CREL seems to do that. So when I talked about some of the ways in which some of these incidental inhibitors seem to be working, one of the things that I didn't focus on but seems to be the case is that many of them are having downstream effects on the NF-kappa-B pathway. They're not acting upstream on, at the level of the kinases, which is where all the pharmaceutical development has been happening. They seem to be sort of tickling specific subunits of the pathway and having somewhat more modest effects on the pathway globally. And so the idea is that if we take targeted inhibitors, but instead of acting upstream, we try to act downstream at the end of kappa B subunits, do we see effects? And so there is, it turns out, just in the last couple of years, a targeted inhibitor of CREL that's um, been kicking around in the literature called IT603, um, and it's thought to selectively inhibit CREL within the NF-kappa-B pathway, um, and it shows very similar effects to pentoxifiline. So suggesting that this was not, um, it's an unrelated to pentoxifiline, it doesn't have effects on phosphodiesterase pathways, and so it seems that selective targeting of CREL in this context may, may really have some real benefit. So that is the end of that data portion, um, but just to say that what we're trying to do in the lab here now is to figure out how we move this forward. And, and not just using pentoxifiline clinically, but also thinking about how do you apply this same model to other diseases and other components of the NF-kappa-B pathway. So one of the real deficits in the literature is knowing what these subunits do in human cells. Um, so most of the work has been done with mouse knockout models. I think there's good evidence that one of the key barriers to translation of those findings may be that there's not perfect overlap in what these NF-kappa-B subunits do 
in mice and in humans. Um, so there have been a couple of technological developments over the last few years that allow us to finally address this in a fairly robust way, and that's to begin to knock out NF-kappa-B in human cell lines and human primary tissues, and then to use next-generation sequencing to say, okay, what actually happens in this specific cell type when you target this specific NF-kappa-B subunit? And then you can begin to link specific subunits, specific cell types, and the transcriptomes of specific disease states and begin to think about are there ways where we can selectively target NF-kappa-B that might actually have some clinical utility. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the other piece that we're working on is to keep moving forward with the CRL targeting. So I will stop there, um, acknowledge some of the folks in the lab um, when we were at Columbia who worked on this project, um, which was also driven mainly by two very talented postdocs in the GOSH lab at Columbia. Um, the doxycycline CTCL work was done in collaboration with a dermatologist in Rochester. Um, the, some of the mice were provided by the Klein lab and the Schmidt lab in Germany, um, and bioinformatic help was from the Rabadon lab at Columbia. Um, and I'll also acknowledge Sean, who's working in the lab now as a lonely medical student all by himself um, and is looking for company. So I'll stop there. Well, I was just curious about the knockdown experiments you were showing. When you knock down a, one member of the heterodimer, do you develop homodimers, or does the overall level drop in the cell? Right. So some of both. Um, so in terms of in the regulatory T cells, we don't necessarily know which CREL homodimer is functioning. So CREL, it could be CREL and P65. More likely, it might be CREL and P50. So there's a lot of possible combinations. We don't know whether or not there's compensation there, um, especially with the uh, drug treatment. Um, with the knockouts, there's clearly some level of compensation that happens. I mean, the double knockouts have effects that are way beyond what you see in either single knockout. So there's definitely some compensation that happens between P65 and CREL, for example. Um, and that's another big issue and barrier to translating some of the mouse findings to the real world, that when you know, the cells develop in the context of lacking a subunit, they, they find ways to compensate, or things change in ways that are... Uh, not necessarily representative of what will happen when you use a small molecule to acutely shut off one specific subunit. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask. So in the pathway is not constituent reactive. Yeah. Regulatory cells. What's the stimulus? So it's, it's um, more constitutively active in regulatory T cells than in conventional T cells. So Tregs are seeing a lot more TCR stimulation constitutively, um, and we think that's predominantly what's driving activation of this pathway. You definitely see additional activation if you come in and trigger the cells, but there's some level of regulatory T cells that are always being activated. Um, and that goes back to the fact that when they're selected in the thymus, they're more responsive to self 
MHC than conventional T cells. They they seem to, if you look at readout, look at readouts of NF kappa B activation from just freshly isolated regulatory T cells, they are more active. Um, I wouldn't say that they have high levels of constituent NF kappa B activation. Two questions. Uh, the first is that um, one of the most annoying things about seeing autoimmune patients is that they have strong family histories, and at the same time, we know that the autoantibodies are epiphenomenon. And there's no way of seeming to pursue that at the level of transcription factors and other elements of the innate immune system that probably underlies a lot of autoimmunity. And I was wondering what your take on that was. Um, and the second question is whether you think that non-specific uh, NF-capital-beam um, inhibitors are going to be more important clinically for autoimmune diseases like they appear to be for jack stat Right. Yeah, so the recent developments in targeting jack stat pathway are interesting in thinking about NF-capital-B because... There were some of the same barriers, and I'll, I'll just take that one first. Um, so, you know, knockouts of jack stat pathway are not good in mice. So the fact that these compounds are so well tolerated in people or in dogs, where they give them to every dog that comes in with an itch, um, is, is surprising. Um, but it, it's, it speaks to, I think, what you said, that, that um, you know, less strong, less specific inhibitors may be more tolerated still have efficacy. Um, and, and I think that's the case, um, will be the case with some of the NF-kappa-B inhibitors as well. Um, so I sh a lot of the inhibitor studies I showed were the peptide, and part of that was for that reason. That peptide's very well tolerated, probably because it has some selective function in specific cell types, and it's not that strong of an inhibitor. But it works in, in mouse models, and there have been clinical trials with that peptide as well. Um, in terms of the genetics of autoimmunity, and I'm not sure this gets exactly to your question, but there have been a lot of genome-wide association studies <laughs> implicating the NF-HFB pathway in every autoimmune disease. Where those are interesting is that all of them, and I didn't talk about any of this today, predominantly implicate some of the negative regulators of the pathway. So there are a lot of NF-kappa-B negative feedback loops. And in that way, they suggest that what they do is produce some underlying susceptibility um, such that once you get into a cycle of driving this pathway, you're less able to negatively regulate it. But they wouldn't on their own drive a spontaneous disease process absent any external input. Given the hour, um, if they're willing, I'll ask people to come down and, yeah. and ask questions. And thank you very much for this excellent talk. Sure.